This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day one. So hi, I'm Natasha. Uh, to kick us off, I will tell you a little bit about who I am in the spirit of culture inclusion, and then I'll get to what I do. That's a little bit about me. I'm a proud third generation Australian. My granddad came here with the English Navy as part of World War II, and I actually live on the central coast in New South Wales. Uh, it's where I grew up, it's where I reside today, and it's on the land of the dark and junk country. I'm very excited to be here presenting to you all in person. I can't believe we're on the in-person conference uh, and on the land of the Kulin Nation. I'll also give a bit of a visual description. So I'm not sure if anyone online is following along just with the audio. I might have a visual impairment uh, or is choosing to follow along the audio for their own reasons. Uh, so I'm in a bright red blazer. You can't miss me. Uh, I've also got a pink geometric top on and long blonde hair. Now, I did give the same visual description at an event I did on Tuesday, and I actually forgot to introduce who I was. So I was MC for this event for two hours, and all anyone knew about me was that I had big pink fairy earrings. So I will tell you who I am as well and what I do. Uh, so a little bit about who I am. So I work for PwC. I'm the National Design Director for our product innovation team. And as part of my role at PwC, I'm really, really lucky to be able to dedicate 20% of my time to what I call vulnerability design. I will say that we didn't plan between sort of Ted, Fiona and I uh, to kind of uh, all talk about very similar themes, but hopefully what I'm sharing with you today will just emphasize some of the things that they've talked about, because really it's about us all working together to make sure we're more inclusive. The other thing I should mention is that I do have some lived experience, but I only have my own lived experience. So I have an invisible disability, and this was something that actually led me to work part-time most of last year. I had five surgeries, I was in and out of hospital, and that eight hour wait, that Ted talked about in that particular video, that was something that was pretty common to me in my time last year. But this was actually pretty interesting to experience because I turned from being a designer to actually a participant and seeing how decisions that we make as designers, as strategists, as business people can actually change lives. So this was a post that came up maybe about two weeks ago on my LinkedIn feed. And I thought it was quite an interesting post uh, but one of the things that really sort of got me stuck was the language disabled people. I thought, oh, Jessica Lopez, she's a business student. That's all right. The intent is there. What she's saying is really, really powerful. It's just a little bit of language that's tripping her up. So for those that don't work in this space, we normally use people first language. And what I mean by that is people with a disability rather than disabled people. Now, some of the things that she says that really stood out to me. Disabled people innovate technologies to live in a world that's not built for them. They build for themselves and we all benefit. When you innovate to include disabled people, you benefit everyone. And this is called the curb cut effect. So I'm sure all of you crossing the road at some point have seen that little indent in the curve that was originally designed for people in wheelchairs, but it's now used by everyone today in terms of strollers, in terms of bikes, or even just not wanting to do that step down from the curb. But ultimately, disability and inclusion mean different things to different people. So this was the top comment uh, that came up on LinkedIn, and it was by someone called Salsi. And so what Salsi says is, I don't like to use the term disabled as what is in your post just shows the opposite of disability. Now, Jessica replied, and what she said was that she actually likes using the term disabled because it's, it's something that has power under the law. And what Salsi didn't realise was that Jessica is actually someone who has her own lived experience. She was born with no arms or no legs. And so in her choice, she chooses to use the term disabled. And this really shows that not everyone with a disability 
actually has an impairment or something which stops them from accessing the different services that we have. And this is why when I talk about disability, I also like to talk about vulnerability. So this brings me to the title of my talk, The Life-Changing Potential of Digital Inclusion. I will mention that the images that I use today, just in the interest of anonymity, I've tried to pick the ones that are as representative possible of the personalities and the characteristics of different people that I've spoken to, but they are images for images sake. The other thing I'll call out as well is that I noticed a couple of my images have actually been used on some of the other talks. And this presents a really interesting conundrum in terms of we're talking about inclusion, but we probably all went on Unsplash and Googled someone with a disability. <laughs> but we're getting there, we're getting there. So I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country before we continue. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Wurundjeri peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and future. I also extend that same respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today, and also the lands that our virtual attendees are dialing in from. Now, the photo that you see here is of Titilik the Greedy Frog. It's a rock over at Wollombi, which is not too far from where I reside in New South Wales. As part of this acknowledgement of country, I'd like to encourage everyone to actually go out and explore some of their local lands and see some of the stories that make up the lands that they reside in. I would also like to say that as each of us does acknowledgement here today as speakers, it has even more gravitas with some of the political events that are happening in our nation. We are so close to having a parliamentary voice for co-design representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The other thing I'll say is that whilst I don't specifically mention First Nations people and their experiences and how we need to be more inclusive in our talk, they should absolutely be front of mind. Okay, labels. Sorry, Fiona. <laughs> labels are important because we need to understand those that are systemically underrepresented. But if someone does identify as any of these labels, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have additional access needs. So I am gonna read, I hope that's okay, just because I do wanna make sure we get these right. And the other thing I'll call out as well is that these were actually created for us to look at our employee experience at PwC. And we did this off the back of working with the Center for Inclusive Design. And so really it's about us applying it to our own practice as well as to the clients that we work with. So to kick us off, we've got the First Nations people and also culturally and linguistically diverse, also known as POWD. So cowed are people who can identify themselves due to circumstances like their country of birth and the country of birth of their parents, what languages they speak and their religious affiliation as being culturally and linguistically diverse. We then have gender inclusive and LGBTQIA, specifically ensuring that male and female stereotypes, gender and sexual orientation do not define our societal roles and expectations. We then have physical disabilities. This relates to physical conditions that affect things like a person's mobility, their physical capacity, their stamina or dexterity. Examples can include brain or spinal cord injuries, multiple cirrhosis, epilepsy, but also hearing and visual impairments. We then have neurodiversity and cognitive differences. I know we've already chatted about a few of those in Ted's talk today, but specifically understanding the unique differences among people with these conditions and how they can equip them in varying degrees. We've then got mental ill health conditions. These affect mood, thinking, and behavior. This can be anything from depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, to eating disorders and addictive behaviors. And last but not least, we have age diverse. And arguably, this is gonna be one of the largest categories of vulnerability that we're gonna see in our society. 
And especially when we look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which says that the number of people aged 65 and over is going to go from 3.7 million in 2017 to 8.7 million in 2046. So notably, the other thing I want to mention is that whilst these are the groups that are systemically vulnerable, we also need to think about the circumstances that they experience. And when they have those circumstances with this systemic exclusion, this is when we really need to direct our support. And some of those circumstances can include financial hardship, unemployment, being in social housing, being homeless, low literacy or no education. So recently uh, I went to Lismore. So for those uh, that have been paying attention to what's been happening on the news, uh, Lismore had a, a series of extreme flooding. I know all of us were kind of rocked here in New South Wales uh, for anyone that is coming from New South Wales. Um, but Lismore in particular was really, really affected. So there was two story buildings that were completely underwater off the back of the huge rain uh, that we had in March this year. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring up Lismore was because I was there about a few weeks ago and I really need a prescription from a doctor. So I called around all these different doctor surgeries and one of the ones that I called was a Lismore doctor surgery. And I just wanna read you the message uh, which they had on their answering machine. Our practice has been significantly affected by the Lismore floods. Our offices are currently closed and are operating out of temporary locations. Please be patient with us as we only have one phone line compared to our usual four. These are trying times for our community and we will do our best to support you. This is almost five months after the floods and they're still affected. So this is why when I think about accessibility, I don't just like to think about disability because not everyone who has a disability is actually vulnerable. So when I think about accessibility, I like to think about vulnerability. And this is vulnerability based on systemic circumstances that someone has experienced as part of being one of those underrepresented voices but also the context of things that they're experiencing in our society today. So at a time when people are feeling more isolated than ever during the COVID pandemic, 43% of Australians said that digital services are helping them feel more connected. Our PwC Australia 2022 citizen survey also found that close to half agree that the government's digitization of services are making them more accessible for all. And this holds true across all age groups. I will say though that whilst these results are extremely positive, when we look at our underrepresented groups, the divide is widening. And here's the photo that uh, has been on, I think, two other talks today. Uh, so according to the 2021 Australian Digital Inclusion Index, the number of Australians who are highly excluded from digital society still remains at 11% of our Australian population. To put this into perspective, this translates to about half the population of Melbourne. So what is digital inclusion? Digital inclusion is about removing the barriers that prevent all people, including those with lived experience of a disability or a vulnerability to equally access our world. So here's a couple of inclusive design guidelines that do exist today. So I reviewed about 105 different inclusive design sets of guidelines. That's about 1,050 different principles that were reviewed in order to understand what this really means in our society today. I'm actually going to say that I reviewed 107 after listening to Fiona and Ted's talk. So one of the ones that I would recommend is the designing for, post, um, designing for posters from the UK Home Office, the Microsoft Inclusive Design Personas and Principles, the Barclays Inclusive Design Principles, and also the Australian Digital Inclusion Index. 
When it comes to the digital context, however, the leading guidelines are the WCAG guidelines and how appropriate we're talking about them when we're about to launch version three of these guidelines. So version three is gonna cater for a broader range of disabilities, and it's also gonna cater for a broader range of assistive technologies. So it's extremely timely that we also think about vulnerability. So there are four WCAG design principles. I'm not gonna to spend too much time on these because hopefully most of you are across these. Uh, but if you do want a bit more information, I highly encourage you to go to W3C. Uh, they've got a free course and also Intopia has also launched some recent training. Now the principles are perceivable, operable, understandable, I'll come back to that one, and robust. You'll see here that we use usable. The reason why we use usable is that the way and context that we use our digital platforms have changed. They're now interactive, they're no longer static content. And therefore we need to think about both understandability and also usability. And these guidelines roughly translate to the poor acronym. And depending on how many of these guidelines you can tick off and the success criteria that sits underneath them, you can then get a rating of A, AA or AAA. So we're proposing that there's two more principles that we need to consider. So the first one is inclusive. Of course, we need inclusive in there. Uh, and inclusive is really about understanding the diversity and the uniqueness of our population so that we can create safe, accessible and affordable experiences and spaces that everyone can use. Then we have trustworthy. And this is particularly important because without trust, people don't engage with digital services. And this is really about making sure that no one is left behind through engagement, simplicity and security. So let's start with the principle inclusive. So we've got the principle here. And then for each of the principles, I'll also have a category and a couple of guidelines that we're going to walk through. So the first category is digital connectivity. So the first guideline that we have, digital connectivity, uh, within it we have create a bridge to digital channels. And really what this is about is helping those that are systemically vulnerable, being able to transition to more digital channels, but also giving them the option to interact face-to-face -face or assisted if needed. And there's a lack of confidence in terms of people's understanding of digital and technology, which really affects their uptake. And 59% of people in a recent survey that PwC conducted actually believe that companies have lost their human touch because they've focused too much on technology. So this guideline is really about no wrong door to support and ensuring that people who are vulnerable do have access, priority access to those channels that are more intensive servicing. So I'll put this into a little bit of context. I am a consultant, so I had to put one model in here. Um, so we'll start with digital self-service. So something as simple uh, like changing your password. This is probably something that most people can do online in that level one category. But if we take something a little bit more complicated, such as changing my name, in the instance this is changing my name due to um, a marriage, for example, maybe this is something that can be digital self-service or digital assisted if I need to provide an identity check. But if I'm someone that's going through family domestic violence and I actually need to change my identity and also have additional security and safeguards on my account, I probably can go all the way up to level six. And that's where not everyone's situation is the same. And therefore we need to understand people's uniqueness and that this is a guide that can help us in terms of how we triage the servicing and help them towards the right channels of interaction. So the next guideline that we have, make it accessible to provide equal resources. So our citizen survey in 2022 found that one of the largest digital divides that we have is geography. This was actually a larger digital divide than age. 
And what we found was that in many rural and remote areas, there's patchy, unreliable, or even entirely absent internet connection. I will say that in Victoria, there's a recent program, Connecting Victoria, which is looking to improve mobile coverage, and it's also looking to increase broadband speeds, particularly in rural locations to enhance emergency communication. But this isn't the case everywhere. So what can we do? We can create multiple access points for people to be able to access digital services. So these can be things like community hubs through to libraries in those rural and remote situations. But it can also be about nudging people when things do become available to increase that uptake. And the next one we have is enable offline and cross-device experiences. So when we talk about homelessness, and this is something which is particularly uh, something I'm passionate about after some of the work that I've been doing over the last few years, there's a common misconception that people who are homeless don't have access to mobile phones. So a recent uh, study that the University of Sydney and Vincent Care did was that 95 people who experience homelessness actually have a mobile phone. This is a higher percentage than the number of people who have a mobile phone compared to uh, in the adult population compared to that of homelessness. So it's 80% of our adult population compared to 95% of people experiencing homelessness. Now the difference though for someone that is in a state of homelessness is that their phone may not always be charged. They may not have access to data. And so therefore we need to think about enabling that offline and cross device experiences. So some of the things we can think about is enabling them to be able to download information from a web page, being able to um, save information for access offline. And if we do this, this is gonna help increase the digital inclusion. So I'm gonna tell a couple of stories as we go through some of these principles. So bear with me. Um, I will say though, that if anything is triggering as we do go through this, please feel free uh, to exit out of the room and make sure you look after yourself first. So this particular individual uh, is someone who I spoke to uh, when I was doing some research up in Brisbane. Uh, and I was looking at the impact of financial hardship on homelessness. Now, what she told me was that she had to apply for five jobs a week as part of her getting Centrelink. And she was doing that, but she wasn't having any luck in getting a job. What she said was the problem was that her phone was never charged, so she kept missing calls. And as a result, she couldn't actually call them back because she didn't have any credit. So this is where digital initiatives, such as um, the Service New South Wales license can actually come into handy. Because one of the other things that she mentioned was that a lot of people were asking for identification, but her wallet kept getting stolen. She was homeless. And so she couldn't actually provide her identification unless she had sort of that digital license, which was starting to roll out now. Going back to her not having any credit, things like the initiative that Telstra is doing in terms of having access to pay phones and making that free of charge, this is helping close that divide. And this is where we look at cross-channel servicing. So in 2020, 11 million calls were made across Australia from Telstra pay phones, including more than 230,000 calls to critical services like triple zero and Lifeline. All right, so our next category for inclusive design is digital ability. So underneath digital ability, the first one is recognised diversity and difference. I won't chat too much about this particular one because we did go through it in terms of the underrepresented voices, but making sure that we're thinking about everyone that we're designing for. The second one that we have here is educate and extend digital comfortability. And this is really about increasing the ability that people have to be able to interact online. The example that you see here of the QR code check-in, I'm sure Melbourne had one of these as well. There was a grandma that went viral because she had over 100 photos of all these different QR codes on her phone. She didn't realise that it was actually a QR code to link you to a web page where you had to provide your details. 
And so this is where basic operational skills is a real gap in some of our generation. So things like downloading opening files, connecting to the internet and setting passwords is a gap in what a lot of people can do online. And so what we really need to do is connect private sector and government and our initiatives that we're doing around extending digital ability in order to improve people's access and comfortability for digital. And the last principle that we have here is make it affordable and close the gap. Now, when we talk about make it affordable, it's not just about donating, donating all of our old devices. It's actually about testing the digital products that we create. And this is about making sure they work on both newer and older technologies. So this is smaller screen sizes, older software variants, but also when new technologies do evolve, such as Face ID, make sure you're not just relying on that as the only way that people can access your design. Another thing that we can do is optimizing development for low data consumption, have small image sizes, and have no forced downloads. So this brings us to our principle inclusive. So the final principle that we have is trustworthy. And I thought this was a really nice principle in terms of Fiona and Ted talking about trust and how important digital trust is in the people that we're designing for. So our first category is digital safety. So this is the COVID safety app. I'm not sure if anyone actually downloaded this app, but 8 million Australians did end up downloading this app. And what it was designed to do was that if you came in close contact with someone who had COVID, it would notify you. Now, as part of downloading this app, you had the option to share your data uh, with uh, the government in terms of uh, your COVID tracking. And of the 8 million who downloaded the app, only 800 people gave permission for their data to be stored. That's a huge lack of digital trust. So what do we need to do? We need to increase cybersecurity for all channels in order to build this trust. So for me personally, I experienced it firsthand in terms of a cybersecurity risk when the ATO and MyGov worked together to try and make it as accessible as possible for people to be able to download uh, their $10,000 if they were without a job during the COVID period. Now what happened during this time was that someone hacked into my ATO account and they were able to set up an identity for me through my Australian business number, which then led to $10,000 being taken from my super. I was one of 150 people that this happened to. And the reason that this happened was because we were trying to open up the door for it to be easier for people who were vulnerable to access support. But what actually happened was that it created a cybersecurity risk. So we need to think about cybersecurity in terms of inclusion as well. The next one here is self-identification of additional access needs. So we know that people don't always feel comfortable disclosing their situation to businesses and to other people. It shouldn't be forced. But when they do tell us that they are ready to share about their situation, we should make sure that we've got the appropriate support in place for them. The example that you see here on the right-hand side is a quick exit button. This is really important when providing information to vulnerable cohorts, particularly in the situation of family and domestic violence, as sometimes access this information can be something which puts them in a life-threatening situation. So this little button that you see on the top right of the screen, it actually clears your browsing history and takes you to a safe web page. So I did want to share one story, um, which was actually shared at a recent conference. So some of you in Melbourne may have already heard this story, but I think it's really important when we talk about trust and safety. So I'll try and keep it brief. So Alex Kearns was a 20-year-old who opened an account with Robinhood, 
So Robinhood is an investing app that allows you to buy stocks with no fees and no experience. Now, Alex took his own life in June 2020 after being fearful of owing $700,000. So he was sent an automated email from Robin Hood at 3.30 in the morning, letting him know that his stocks had dropped and he needed to make an urgent payment in three days of $170,000. Alex immediately emailed the company asking if they could look into it, but he received an automatic reply saying the responses were delayed. That night, he took his own life. Now, the thing that really stuck with me after hearing this story and reading up a little bit more about it is that there was a CBS interview with Alex's parents. And in that interview, they were asked the question, do you think if Robin Hood had someone manning a phone or an email account, Alex would still be here today? And their response, absolutely. So the lesson here is when customers identify as having additional access needs, make sure we have the appropriate support in place to ensure that we can care for them effectively. So the next guideline that we have is around ethical use of personal data. And I know we already touched on this one a little bit from the other talks as well. And really it's about using data for good, not for harm. And so things like when someone misses a payment on a bill, particularly if they miss two in a row, we should be using that to automatically put them on a payment plan. We shouldn't be using that to restrict their service. So having a think about how we use data effectively in order to help customers out of that vulnerable situation. So our last category that we have is trustworthy. So the first guideline that sits underneath trustworthy is give users control over what's on record. So when we think control, it's actually about in the moment control and it's also about reflective control. So when I'm signing up for my profile, I wanna know how information is used so that that way I can determine how much I wanna disclose. Similarly, if I've been a member with a product or a service for a period of time, encourage me to update my information to make sure that it is accurate and up to date. The other thing that we can talk about here in terms of control is things like a progress stepper or a review screen. And so having these digital safeguards in place can make someone feel comfortable about the information that they're disclosing because they know that they've got the chance to review it before they continue. The second guideline that we have here is easy and consistent information breakdown. So the example that you see here on the right was actually something that went viral on LinkedIn of a 17 year old that designed these remotes for her granddad. And we think about easy and consistent information breakdown, I'd highly encourage you to go back to some of those principles that Ted mentioned in his talk as well for cognitive disabilities. And cognitive disabilities aren't the only ones that benefit from easy and consistent information. We know that when people experience vulnerability, they also have trouble with information processing and retaining information. So what does easy and consistent information breakdown consist of? It's writing things in plain language, it's avoiding acronyms, and it's also unlocking familiarity. This is my last guideline, so I might go one minute over. <laughs> uh, Co-design with us, never without us. I uh, actually thought it was really beautiful uh, that uh, the opening sort of keynote talked about this same sort of sentiment. Uh, and this became really, really uh, popular after the 2004 UN Disability Convention had this as their particular tagline. So when you think about co-design, it's really about understanding all of the different voices that are in the room, and it's creating a partnership rather than tokenism. And when we talk about uh, particularly service design, UX design, research, we talk about triangulation of methods. What we should really be doing is triangulation of people to understand the different perspectives that we have. 
So I'm almost done. I'm going to wrap up uh, with a little bit of a story um, and then I'll recap on the six principles. Uh, so this particular gentleman uh, was a PE teacher who I met up in, uh, up in Brisbane when I was doing research on the transport experience for people with a disability. Now, this gentleman went in uh, for a routine knee replacement. He was a PE teacher, so it wasn't too surprising. Uh, and when he had these routine knee replacements, three days into his post-surgery, he actually developed a staph infection. Now, five days into his post-surgery, he had to be amputated above the knees. Now, this particular gentleman, uh, he's still teaching. Um, he's now a PE theory teacher and a science teacher. Uh, but for him in particular, um, when he decides to get the bus uh, to work every day, he decides to walk up the bus stop, which is on the top of a hill from the bottom of his house, uh, on his stumps. He chooses not to take his wheelchair with him. And when I asked him why, he said, it's not that I can't get the wheelchair up there. It's easy to get the wheelchair up there. It's when I hop on the bus, they chain me in because that's a legal and a safety requirement that Queensland Transport had at the time. He said, that's the only time that I feel like I have a disability. So ultimately, disability and inclusion mean different things to different people. For those that did, oh, sorry. And that's the conclusion of trustworthy uh, as a principle. So we have the six principles of accessibility and inclusion. For those that didn't get a photo, you can take a photo now. Uh, but essentially, the acronym uh, is for it. So I'd encourage you, when you do think about your designs, remember for it and for it together so that we can be more inclusive. So that's perceivable, operable, usable, robust, inclusive, and trustworthy. And then just to finish, what's one thing that you would do differently to be more inclusive? If you have filled out the slider, that second question will hopefully be up there now. Thank you.